Thank you for listening to this teaching from the prayer room. For more teachings, notes, downloads, or to subscribe to our podcast, as well as information about who we are and our upcoming events, visit our website at tprdfw.com. All right, I see notes being passed around. Thank you for that. Also, notes are online uh, for those who would rather get a digital copy. Well, as we finish up tonight, Book of Revelation, this is session 115, entitled Timeline of Events. And I looked, I just went back and, you know, checked my calendar and looked at the different session, you know, uh, creation, the the notes, creation dates, and uh, verified that it was... February 2nd, 2019, that we did our first session. So we have been doing this thing for a good long minute. And uh, I feel like tonight's going to be a good wrap-up for us. So I'm going to pray, and then we'll jump in. Father, we thank you for your spirit, and we ask you for help tonight. In so many ways, help wrap up the book of Revelation for us. God, solidify some things tonight. May your spirit speak and remind and help us in Jesus' name. Well... Session 115, Timeline of Events, Book of Revelation, as we wrap up with the uh, objective here tonight, serve as a little bit of a review, serve as a little bit of of a run-through of the Book of Revelation, but the objective tonight is, uh, for the most part, I mean, I think I've got two things that I included that weren't a direct uh, Book of Revelation uh, quote, but I just felt like they were so pertinent to the end time storyline, I wanted to include them. But with the exception of those couple, all of the points that we're going to look at tonight are ones that are, have, we've looked at specifically from the book of Revelation over the course of these past uh, however long. <clears throat> and what we're going to do is we're going to go through the chronological storyline of the book of Revelation. So this isn't a every detail, but it's, it's most of the major events and trends. And the objective here is, again, it's going to serve as a review, a recap, um, as we do a run-through revelation. I'm going to have to be pretty quick, so probably a lot of these I'll just reference and you see the verse there, as opposed to reading the verse, because this is all stuff we've covered already. But I want to be able to cover it, and I mean, this is 10 uh, pages of notes instead of five or six, like kind of we normally do. So I'm going to have to go a little bit fast tonight. But my objective really isn't review mostly, though it will all be review. My objective is, as you think back on these different components, where do they fall in line chronologically? What happens first? What's after that? What's after that? What's after that? So tonight is a a chronological run-through of the timeline, which is actually pretty different than what we did at the front end, because when we did something... I mean, not exactly, but similar-ish on the front end, just talking about the, the, uh, the timeline. But it was talking about information that was all unfamiliar to you. Now we're talking about information that's all very familiar to you and helping you connect the dots. Oh, yeah, I guess I didn't realize that went before that. Oh, that's when that falls. And for some, it's just going to be straight-up review of all the information you already know. Now, I've broken this into a few categories, and these aren't perfect, uh, but the, the categories, just so you can kind of get a feel for it, uh, is wickedness rising in the last generation. Then, kind of similarly, the church. What's going on with the church in the decades before Jesus' return? Then after that, we've got the beginning of the Great Tribulation. And I, there's a lot of things that happen at the beginning of the Great Tribulation that I'm actually going to make a whole different section for 
the Great Tribulation. Because there's a ton in the book of Revelation that happens that jumpstarts the Tribulation period. And so uh, I, I gave you the beginning of the Great Tribulation. And then uh, part five is the judgments unfold. Then part six is the second coming procession. Then part seven is establishing the kingdom age. After that, it's heaven descending and life continuing forever. And so those are our kind of our categories here tonight as we, we jump through, run through. So again, tonight, which is a bit uncharacteristic, we're not going to spend so much time reading the Bible verses because this is all information we've already covered, but now we're just going to kind of put it in order and hopefully kind of get a, uh, a storyline in your head that is a bit more complete than at any point during this entire, uh, you know, three and a half years of study. Uh, now you're familiar with all the points and we're putting them in order and you can connect the dots, go, ooh, yep, that, and then that, oh, this happens at the same time as that, that's the objective, here we go. Wickedness rising in the last generation. We know that this is a significant subject in the end times, but the word of uh, God, specifically the book of Revelation, speaks to this in a significant way. I mean, talks a lot about it. Revelation 9, 20 through 21, describes wickedness increasing dramatically. Wild versions of sin becoming normal things as part of the culture in the last generation. Now, we're already in that generation. You even heard Beverly just a minute ago talking about the signs of the times and how some of these trends, even since we did that signs of the times series, we've seen them uptick on probably all of those trends. It's only going to continue to get worse to the point where murder, witchcraft, sexual immorality, and theft will be the four primary sins of the final generation, which is just unthinkable. So wickedness rising dramatically in the last generation. What else? The heart of the harlot Babylon system taking root in culture. Now those are two related ideas, but the whole Babylon system is actually a bit broader. Revelation 17.2 tells you, with her, the kings of the earth committed adultery, and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. It's going to take season of time for the whole earth to get on board with the ways of the harlot Babylon. We're watching that happen now. We're in the generation where the heart of the harlot is actually on the rise in our culture. Things are being said and are being embraced. Another point that we don't think often about, but it's one that's important to note, is the Antichrist has to be born and then rise to become a regional leader. Before he becomes the well-known Antichrist, he will be a regional leader of some sort, probably positioned in Europe or the Middle East. And uh, so before he becomes the Antichrist that everybody knows, he is some politician that a bunch of people know, but certainly not the planet. We know that because uh, a, a number of details. I don't want to go into that. I just want you to be thinking final generation means more than likely the Antichrist is alive right now. Or if he's not alive right now, he'll be born pretty soon. I mean, that's, an, that's a troubling thought. And so just, but that's part of the end time storyline. He's got to be born for him to be able to do bad stuff. The temple in Jerusalem will be rebuilt. Now, the reason I put this under this one, it, the timeline, the, the temple is going to take probably some time to build. There's going to need to be another temple in Jerusalem on the Temple Mount rebuilt, and that's going to take some time. And so I don't know how long, but 
uh, you're not going to put that thing up in a week or a month or probably not even a, a year. I mean, it's going to take years, if not a decade. And who knows, maybe they've got ways to expedite that. I know they are certainly working diligently to be able to just have it push the go button and it be built uh, pretty quickly. But my point is, that's going to be a major sign that's going to be lasting for a season of time, watching the temple be built. And part of the reason I put it in this first category, as opposed to under the church, is because the whole reason that this thing is going to really be built is to be the Antichrist's headquarters when he announces himself God of the planet. He's going to do it in the temple. He's going to say, I am the God of this temple. So that's really kind of a an ominous thing. I mean, when we're going to be alive when this happens. The temple's going to be rebuilt, and it's going to be interesting. It's going to be one of the most intriguing things, especially to the church. And, and a lot of the church is going to be celebrating that in a way that is actually inappropriate uh, because that's not our temple. I mean, that's like, that's, that's not what's going to be going on there. Jesus, when Jesus rebuilds a temple in the millennium, that's our temple. This one's actually going to be the Antichrist temple. And before it's the Antichrist temple, it's going to be secular uh, Jews. It's going to be, uh, not secular, but, but uh, uh, Jews that are not believing in Jesus are going to be operating that temple, and it's not going to have anything to do with Jesus Christ. So it's going to go from having nothing to do with Jesus Christ to having everything to do with the Antichrist. Neither of those two things are particularly exciting. Okay? So I just want us to understand that. Next... The church in the decades before Jesus' return. Now, this is the same period of time as what we just read. But now we're going to take it from the angle of what's going on with the church. First thing, the church of the last generation is warned. Now, there are th times with my kids where I give them a warning and they don't hear it. They legitimately don't hear it. It just is like they're doing something, they're not paying attention, and they don't hear the warning. But then there's that moment where I catch their eyes and I say, do you hear me? This is your warning. The church, I believe, throughout most of church history has not received the warning of Revelation 1.1. And that is, this revelation was given to show the church what must soon take place. That's a, that's a warning that the church is actually going to receive. And that's in conjunction with the seven letters. The seven letters have not historically been taken for real-time instruction. They've typically been seen as, well, those were letters, you know, to the churches way back when, but we've forgotten verse 1, which says, this testimony that I'm about to give you 22 chapters, it's not to tell you history, it's to tell you the future. The, the seven letters to the seven churches will be received by the church real time as a warning for our generation. Now, the information's always been there, but the church has not yet had that revelation, and the church will. Or else we can't make it. Because the information was given to help us navigate what's coming. So the church will receive that. Next, and it's related to that, the church is going to awaken to the reality of Jesus Christ soon coming. Right now, by and large, the church is not mostly thinking about Jesus coming back. Can, I, can you just think about this for a second? Pretend Jesus was coming back in six weeks. Okay, that's not happening. But pretend he was coming back in six weeks and the whole church knew it. We would not live like we did last week. No one would live that way. Everything would be different. 
The church is going to come into that real-time revelation that Jesus Christ is coming back. It's the bride of Christ. Let's, let's not separate the thought process that the church that we know, the churches that we're part of, and the, the church culture that we know, and, and there's a lot of that that needs to be strengthened, I understand. But let's not separate that from the fact that that is the one bride of Jesus Christ. Jesus will have his bride ready. The, the church will know what's going on ahead of time. Right now, we don't. By and large, the church is not thinking about any of this. We will. Because look how many times Jesus said, I am coming soon, I am coming soon, I am coming soon, I am coming soon in the book of Revelation. It sounds like Jesus wants the church believing he's coming soon. The church will actually believe that. So I'm not saying it'd be good or we need to get with it. I am telling you right now, before Jesus comes, the church will believe that statement and will be embracing a lifestyle that is appropriate uh, to, to have, say you believe that. Next, along with that, the church will begin to take her end time role seriously. Right now, the church is not thinking about we have an end time destiny. We're supposed to do stuff in the end times. We're going to be here during the end times. The end times matters for the church. That's not really a thought process that much of the church is thinking about. We will. This will become probably the primary dialogue in the body of Christ for a season of time, a season of years, or even potentially decades. I mean, it's going to be the primary dialogue is we're the end time church. We have a role in the end times and what we're doing matters, how we live matters, and it's going to really matter. And right now, we've not yet taken that seriously. When I say we, I don't want us to think that because 10 people think this stuff that the body of Christ is on track. We are part of the body of Christ. And who cares if we're part of 10 people who are thinking about this? We need for the church of which we are part of. So by and large, we are not giving any thought or attention to this at all. But before Jesus comes, we will. The bowls of heaven are going to be filled. Just a thought that I had this week as I was you know, preparing for this message. The Revelation 5, 8 through 10. Each of them had a harp and were holding golden bowls full of incense. I just want you to think about this for a second. The prophecy begins with, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave his servants to show them what must soon take place. So Revelation 5.8 is actually a prophecy, not a telling reality of all the details of what was going on uh, at that point only. It's prophetic as well. Here's the part that's prophetic. The bowls are full. They've not been full before. They have not been full, or those bowls and the purposes of those bowls would have been fulfilled. The bowls are filled. How do the bowls get filled? They're the prayers of the saints. The way those bowls get filled is the end-time prayer movement. The end-time prayer movement is going to fill those bowls, and those bowls will be full, and then those bowls are going to get poured out. Those bowls are going to get answered. Those bowls are going to get tipped. There's a significant amount related to those bowls reaching fullness that only comes from the church on the earth praying. So part of that is the end-time prayer movement. I mean, really, the crux of that is the end-time prayer movement. Also, what's going on with the church at this time? Significant rise in persecution against the church. We need to recognize this is coming to America. It's, it's already the case in some nations of the earth. This is going to be a global reality. America will not escape it. 
whatever systems we come up with, whatever government we elect uh, in America, there is going to be significant persecution come to the church in ways that are going to make us feel very, very uncomfortable. And that's part of the prophecy that Jesus said. It's part of the, I mean, there's so many prophetic uh, uh, verses that declare that reality for the church as a global reality across the earth. But we just want to recognize we're in a season right now where there is going to be a rise in persecution against the church and a rise that is never going to retract until the second coming. A rise that it's not like, oh, this is just a bad season. We got a bad you know, guy in office or something. I mean, we're talking about a, a rise that will not go backwards. It will be increasingly difficult, increasingly difficult. And the church in America, I just want to say right now, as an American Christian, we are not ready for that. And really, probably what's going to really cause the prayer movement in America is that. When the persecution increases to a point where everybody's so uncomfortable, we have to pray in order to be able to operate, then the prayer movement in America will probably operate. And I just feel like the Lord's probably like, well, then let's get on with it. Let's go ahead and increase that persecution. Let's get that prayer movement fiery hot. We got some bowls up here to fill. So I just want to connect all these dots. Under Babylon, martyrdom will increase greatly. The rise of the harlot Babylon will increase martyrdom. It won't just be persecution. It's now going to be the Babylonian system that's going to be operating the globe. This is before Antichrist. This is, this is the generation. It's the, probably the decade or two, maybe more. I don't think it's more, but that's just me speculating. The decade or two before Antichrist, Babylon will have her grip on the planet and the world will be celebrating wickedness. And under Babylon, there will be the greatest increase of martyrdom that the earth has ever seen. Once again, another thing that the church in America is not ready for is martyrdom for our faith. It's another big deal. In the midst of all that, the increased opportunity for sin, the increased pressure when we're righteous, the increased demand for a lifestyle of prayer and fasting in order to be able to function, in order to be able to continue moving forward. All of these factors and the great deception, the great falling away will come. The great falling away, we will see the greatest number of people deny Jesus, turn away from the faith, embrace false religion, still call themselves a Christian, a form of godliness, but deny the power of the resurrection, deny the power of forgiveness, deny the power of righteousness. They'll deny the power of the kingdom, but they'll still call themselves a Christian. They'll be that category. Then they'll be the category that's straight up, hey, I don't want anything to do with this. They'll fall away from the faith. There's going to be the greatest number of people that were Christians before, no longer being Christians, and that's going to happen while we're alive in this generation. That is a horrifying thought process that there's just so much Bible on. Again, I gave you verses there. I was trying to stick with just verses in Revelation, but the strongest verses on that point aren't in Revelation. Okay. The beginning of the Great Tribulation. Again, this is a, another category that I want us to be able to process. And I want to give you the, uh, the key word here is beginning, okay? So we're not even going to look at the Great Tribulation. We're going to look at all the events and trends in the book of Revelation that jumpstart the Great Tribulation. So these are not even necessarily the Great Tribulation, you know, biggest and baddest. This is just what jumpstarts it. These are the events and trends that we see in Revelation that are all connected to the start of the Great Tribulation, which, one more detail, happens after... 
the decade or two of the birth pains, which is the same period of time as the decade or two of the rise of Babylon, and the decade or two of the increase of wickedness, and the, the martyrdom of the saints, and the persecution. All of those things happen, and then the Great Tribulation happens, and we're going to look at the window of time when the Great Tribulation gets underway. What does the book of Revelation say are the things that are going to happen? Because there's a bunch of things. One, the end time scroll is handed to Jesus in heaven. When we read the Revelation 5 account of Jesus being handled, handed the scroll, that didn't already happen. That's not happening every day. That's him taking the title deed of the earth because he's about to come and rule and reign it real time in person. That scroll has always been, but we don't want to look at Revelation 4 and 5 and go, man, every morning at 6 a.m., somebody stands up and goes, no one can be found worthy. I know we found him yesterday, but today no one can be found. Where is nobody? Oh, it's Jesus. He's worthy. That doesn't happen again and again. It happens one time, and it's future. And it happens in conjunction with the kicking off of the Great Tribulation period. That's when that occurs. Similarly, in that same time frame, Satan is cast out of heaven and out of the heavenly realms. This is the beginning of the Great Tribulation. Satan is cast out of heaven. You know, right now, he has access to the heavenly courts. He accuse, he's the accuser of the brethren. He has access to the heavenly courts. He won't, though. He's going to get kicked out of heaven in the time frame when Jesus is given the title deed to the earth. Satan is going to come and get to really challenge that title deed. And Satan is going to be on earth. He's, there's war in heaven, and Michael and the angels fight, and the dragon and his angels fight, and the dragon, Satan, they're not strong enough, and they're kicked out and thrown to the earth. And then woe to the inhabitants of the earth. For the dragon has been cast down, and he knows that his time is short. He will be raging as at no time in history. I find it to be interesting. He'll be raging as at no time in history, right before he's thrown into prison and doesn't get to rage at all for a thousand years. I mean, it's pretty climatic. This is a big deal. Okay? Satan's cast out of heaven. The Antichrist, this is, again, this is how the Great Tribulation starts. The Antichrist dies. He's a guy. He's a regional leader. He's going to be the president of some nat nation or the secretary of state of the EU. Or, I don't know. I don't have all that part figured out. He's going to be somebody that a lot of people know. He's not going to be everybody's favorite guy on the planet, but he's going to be some guy in power. And he's going to die. He's going to die. He's going to go to hell. He's going to get raised from the dead like Jesus got raised from the dead. And when he gets raised from the dead, he's going to get raised from the dead with resurrection power. It just so happens the power comes from Satan. So now, now Antichrist, who was just a dude a minute ago, is now like this unbelievable uh, superstar on the planet because everybody just watched him raise from the dead. It's, that's an unthinkable sign and wonder. And he has given that sign and wonder in order to deceive the nations. Now, no Bible-believing Christians should be deceived. We know ahead of time. It says it's going to happen. And we're going to tell our lost friend who's all excited because they're like, man, Jimmy got raised from the dead. He's, he's super Jimmy now. And we're going to be like, Jimmy is the devil. 
Like, no, 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 look, I'll show you in the Bible. Look, it didn't say his name, but it says this guy is going to die from a head wound. He's going to rise from the dead, and he's going to, let me tell you what next. Jimmy's going to go to the temple, and be, he's going to tell everybody he's God. No, Jimmy wouldn't do that. Jimmy's a great guy. I am telling you what is going to happen. Listen to me. And we all need to be knowing our Bible so we can be telling our friend, family members, and even other Christians that are like, no, Jimmy stands for good stuff. Like, Jimmy is the devil. Now, if his name is really Jimmy, I'm just saying. <laughs> Lord help us. Okay. All right. He rises from the dead. He sets himself up in the temple and he declares himself God. You can't have him rise and set. Uh, you can't have him declare himself God in the temple until there's a temple. The Antichrist at this point will institute beast worship. He'll say everybody has to worship the beast. A false prophet rises with him. There's now a new global system. There has never been a global worship system that was required uh, across the entire planet, every tribe, culture, nation. This will be the first time that it's ever happened. And the Antichrist will set this up where everybody in the earth is required to worship or they can't participate in the system. It's, a, it's an economic system. Also in this time frame, the two witnesses arise. The two witnesses start off when the false pro uh, prophet and the Antichrist start off. You got two bad guy witnesses and two good guy witnesses. And both of them start at the same time, the beginning of the Great Tribulation. We're told that they prophesy for the same number of days that the Antichrist is allowed to be the Antichrist in power. It's the same period of time. So it's just really going to be like a really intriguing jumpstart season. There are all these things that are happening all at the same time. Also, the Great Tribulation is when the greatest level of revival occurs. Now, we're believing for revival leading up to that. There will be great revival in the last generation. But the greatest number of those that are going to get saved are said to have been those that came out of the Great Tribulation. They will have gotten saved during the Great Tribulation. So you're talking about wild bad and wild good on the same day. Two bad witnesses, two good witnesses. You know, I mean, this is, this is going to be a really tumultuous season of time. This is the beginning of the Great Tribulation. This all happens in a week. I mean, that is going to be... Listen, I don't watch a lot of news. I will be watching the news that week. I'll be glued to the TV. What's next? Oh, my gosh, the two witnesses. Look at them. Here they are. Oh, man, they went and told Jimmy he was the devil. Oh, Jimmy's mad. Oh, Jimmy can't hurt him. The witnesses just called down fire. I mean, it's, it's going to be so nuts, okay? So buy a TV at that point just to watch the news. It won't matter what network. They won't be able to spin the story fast enough. It, it will be, it'll be crazy, okay? Then the judgments unfold. Now, this is the great tribulation. This is the judgments. The seven seals. We know them. Rise of the Antichrist. World war. Global famine. One-fourth of the earth dies. The martyrs cry out. The spirits outpouring. Fire from the altars hurled to the earth. Then the seven trumpets. Outpouring of hail, fire, and blood. Something like a huge burning mountain thrown to earth. A blazing star is thrown into the sea. One-third of the sea and the moon are st uh, and stars go dark. Demonic locusts come out of the abyss. Then a second demonic army of 200 million comes out of the abyss. The rapture and Jesus' second coming procession begin. Then the seven bowls of wrath, painful sores, total loss of food supply, total loss of water supply, scorching fire, demonic darkness, antichrist army annihilation, and then finally the earth's annihilation. 
Now, there's a little bit of overlap here between what we just read, the last part specifically, and the second coming procession. Because what's happening is the, the, uh, the judgments are going to be poured out faster and faster as they happen. So the seals happen relatively slowly with some several months between each time. Then the trumpets happen, and it's probably more like some number of weeks. I mean, still it could still be a bunch of weeks, but it's not like 100 weeks. You know, it's like 10 weeks or 20 weeks between. And then after that, the bowls of wrath are poured out. They're poured out within a matter of days from one another. So you go from, you know, months to weeks to days. It's a little bit more complicated than that, but that's a pretty good snapshot. Well, it just so happens that the days that the bowls of wrath are being poured out, they don't actually fall in the three and a half year period defined as the Great Tribulation. But really, you don't want to get so technical about how long is the Great Tribulation? I mean, it, technically, it's three and a half years. But there's some details right there on the front end, right there on the back end, that are still part of that storyline in a very real sense, okay? Part of that being the bulls of wrath, because the bulls of wrath are actually part of what's happening during the second coming procession. So the judgments just happened, the seventh trumpet is blown, and whammo, Jesus Christ in the sky. When the last trumpet is blown, Jesus appears in the sky. I gave you Revelation 19. This is the start of a procession. What's a procession? Procession being almost like a parade. There's this, gr there's this grand entrance of Jesus and, and the saints and the armies of heaven and the angels, and they're all coming with him. It is a grand processional making its way out of heaven. It starts in the sky, but it ends on the earth. During this processional, which is going to last 30 days, during this procession, that's when the bulls of wrath are actually happening. It happens in that last 30 days. While Jesus is coming in triumph, bulls of wrath are being poured out, and it's like the worst, most unimaginable, awful things are occurring while Jesus is triumphantly walking right through it, and nothing touches him, and nothing touches his armies. It is an unbelievable statement of who the good guys are and who the bad guys are, and how does God feel about the bad guys. It's really powerful. The final battle happens. We often refer to it as the Battle of Armageddon. Reason is it happens in the valley of Megiddo. And so it's the Har of Megiddo, so Harmageddon. And so it happens there outside of Jerusalem. It's a valley uh, just to the west of Jerusalem. And there, that's where this big battle happens where all the armies of the earth gather and they're all annihilated. But at the end of that annihilation, you're talking about millions of troops that are dead now laying there, millions. And God has this really disgusting idea called the Great Supper of God, where he is going to whistle real loud, and he, all the birds of the earth are going to come and eat all the dead guys. They're going to eat the bodies of all of these millions of slain army guys and probably gals and, and everything. I mean, it's going to be really intense. It's part of the cleanup process. It's not the fullness of it, but it's part of the cleanup process. It's also a judgment because an honorable thing when someone falls, especially a soldier, is to bury them. These guys don't get buried. They get eaten by crows and stuff. To get eaten by a crow is just a bad way to go, okay? Well, in the midst of this, Psalm 23 happens. 
In the, he, he, prepare, uh, he prepares a table for me in the presence of my enemies. I was reading this verse this morning. I was looking at that verse specifically, Psalm 23. I was reading that particular phrase, and at that particular second, Luke Fredenberg sang those exact words while I was reading it that very second, today, while I was getting ready for this message. And I was like, oh my gosh, that was like, there's only one place in the whole Bible that says it, and I just happened to be looking at it while Luke changes gears and starts singing about it. I was like, okay, Lord, I gotcha. So here's what happens. The wedding banquet of the Lamb. So there's the great supper of God, not a good thing. That's where all the birds eat the bad guys. But there is a good thing meal that happens. It's the wedding supper. It's the church being married to Jesus at a big wedding banquet. It just so happens that this wedding banquet takes place in the context of all of those dead guys. They're all still there. Now, even if it gets set up in Jerusalem, which would make sense, I'd... I don't think that this banquet occurs down in the valley. There's no reason to, to make that that way. It makes sense that it would be in Jerusalem, in the city. But still, you just look over the hill, and it's like, look at all those dead guys and all those birds eating them. It's going to take some time for those birds to eat. They don't go away in five minutes. I mean, it's a really, like, Lord of the Rings kind of a picture here, okay? You got these guys up on the hill in this light, bright righteousness, they're all eating and happy. It's a really big meal, and Jesus is there, and Jesus is telling jokes. You look over this, and there's this swarm of a bajillion birds that got blood dripping from their beaks, and they keep dive-bombing. The, I mean, that is like, whoa! This is the most intense thing that has ever happened, ever! I mean, it's really intense. Establishing the kingdom age. All right, so now Jesus is back, but he hasn't been made king yet. He's going to be made king. Thousand years begins. We know it's a thousand years because it says a thousand years like eight times. Over and over it says a thousand years, a thousand years. There's no reason to make it figurative. It's not figurative. It's a thousand years. That thousand years begins, and this is when life really begins. This is when the good stuff really starts, where we look back on the days of our, the weakness of our flesh, the weakness of life, the frailty, our lack of understanding, our inability to prophesy. Now we, we prophesy, you know, in part, we know in part, it's as if looking at a, in a mirror dimly. Uh, so much about our life is we're looking in a mirror dimly, you know, and sometimes I'm glad because I don't like what I see sometimes when I look in that mirror. The thousand years begins. Jesus is crowned king of kings. For the first time ever, Jesus will be crowned the global leader over government. Right now, Jesus has a title that most no one on the planet cares to heed. They're not heeding the title of Jesus as king of kings. They're not paying attention to it. They're not asking him his permission. They don't care what he thinks. He's coming. He'll be crowned king of kings or leader on planet earth that everybody has to salute. Everybody. He will have kings that he will be the king over those kings. It will be like the biggest small group ever. Okay? And Jesus will lead his global small group of kings and they'll do everything he wants, and they'll like it. They won't, there won't be conflict. They'll have, you know, brightness in their spirit. They'll love what he says. They'll be about his, his business. He'll be crowned the literal king of kings. And at that moment, praise the Lord, Satan is thrown into the abyss for a thousand years. 
So Jesus ushers in righteousness, positive. Satan and all of his yuck and attack and accusation and filth and, uh, and uh, just all the yuck, all the, all the, uh, the attack, it's all thrust out. So in comes Jesus and good, out goes Satan and bad. And in the same moment of time, we start a thousand years that's going to look that way. That's pretty awesome. Satan banished to the abyss. In the midst of that, judgment is executed on all the wicked. There will be many people that don't come to the Battle of Armageddon because they're not in the army of that nation. They were 12 years old. They were the housewife of the guy that was off at war or the house husband of the gal that was off at war. They are wicked. They've taken the mark of the beast. They are horrendously evil, but they weren't at the Battle of Armageddon to get killed. They still need to be judged and executed. All of them will be judged and executed. There's a tremendous amount of them. This is one of those verses that isn't in the book of Revelation, this next point. All the Jews are brought back to Jerusalem. It's a major point. Because you don't, you don't have a vibrant city of Jerusalem with the population of Jerusalem at this, point, uh, uh, at this point in the end time drama. Too many bad things have happened. Too many people have died. Too many people have left. I mean, remember, this will be the most anti-Semitic city on the planet ruled by the Antichrist for three and a half years. It is not a place you want to be Jewish during that season of time. So everybody's going to leave. And Jesus is going to bring them all back. Hey, all of you come back. I'm not like the other guy. I, I am as for you as that guy was against you. And he's going to bring back all the Jews and resettle Jerusalem. And Jerusalem will now become the headquarters of the planet with all those Jews brought back. At the end of this thousand-year period of time, 1,000 years, we just, we can't even imagine. We have no idea about cohesion for a 1,000 years. We just have no idea what that looks like. I mean, anytime we're talking about something lasting for a week, we're excited. You know, man, this ministry didn't quit for, they, they made it a year, uh, 10 years. A thousand years, the whole planet is the ministry of Jesus Christ for a thousand years with cohesion and building upon and, and brilliant. And, and it's not a new leader. You know, one of the things that's difficult is, I mean, it's both refreshing and it also brings difficulties is all the governments of the earth, the, the leader gets recycled because eventually they, they either get voted out of office or die. But this leader, it'll be the same guy with the same plan from the beginning, and the plan never changes. It just keeps getting executed and better, and this is really cool. A thousand years, and right when everything is awesome, Jesus says, okay, let Satan out of prison. Huh? Really? Yeah, he's got to try to deceive everybody. Don't be deceived. He's bad. And like the number on the seashore... People will follow Satan. Unbelievable. The population at that point will be significantly higher than what it is before Jesus comes. I mean, before the Great Tribulation starts. I, I, I wager billions and billions and billions, maybe even a trillion. God likes people. There's going to be so many people during the millennium because they don't die of natural causes like they used to. They live hundreds of years. They're, they're making more babies and then another generation of babies and another generation of babies. They're not dying. They're eating good. They're under Jesus' leadership. There's all sorts of rules that nobody ever told us that make sense on what to do and what not to do that keeps everybody alive longer. The, the population's just going to get out of control. And like the number of the seashore, a sea, the sand on the seashore, people are going to follow Satan. And they're going to wind up in the lake of fire. Horrifying. 
Heaven descends and life continues forever. Now, New Jerusalem descends to the earth out of the cosmos during the thousand-year reign. It is somewhere above the, uh, above the, uh, the earth, but not so far because it's, it's able to be viewed and it's like it's blocking the sun. It's providing shade. So if something's, you know, uh, you know 10,000 miles out in space, that doesn't provide shade and stuff. So it's got to be close enough that it's providing shade. But the point that it's providing shade means it's not on planet Earth. Because a, a tree, you know, it, the leaves aren't on the Earth. They're above it. And that's what's providing the shade. The, the city of New Jerusalem will be above the Earth some short distance for the thousand years. And that will be really, really awesome. And it'll be the worst that it ever is. Because it only gets better and cooler after that. The nations are said that they will walk by the light of the New Jerusalem like it's operating like a sun. And so during that thousand years, heaven will be hovering over the earth, operating like a sun. It will, be both a, it will both provide light and will also provide shade. There's all sorts of supernatural dynamics that are happening. Cool things are coming out of heaven and helping people. People are bringing the cool stuff of earth up into heaven. Then after the thousand years, things change. We want to think about this moment as, a, uh, as a, one of those mind can't conceive, no eye is seen, no ear is heard kind of a thing. As opposed to, yeah, we got it. We know exactly what it'll be like. It's described as a drastic change when these things happen. When, the, when heaven comes to rest on the earth, here are some of the dynamics that shift. There's no more sea. Another thing, it's on the earth. It's never been on the earth before. Another thing, it's at this moment that it's described a new heavens and a new earth. So some version of new heaven and new earth, but still it's heaven and still it's earth, but it's new heavens and it's new earth. And these things are all, this is all part of this dynamic uh, uh convergence that's occurring uh, at the end of the millennial period and it's jump-starting the new age that comes after the millennium. The father dwells with man. It's never happened before. I mean, in the garden. But since the garden, God has not dwelt with man. The father on earth, comfortable next to humans, no humans dying, no humans running away, no humans crying, no, no God judging humans. We haven't had that since the garden because of the sin issue. Salvation alone hasn't resolved that issue or, or Father would already be here. The millennial period of Christ ruling saved humans. And then the opportunity for a final rebellion where lots will rebel and they will then be purged. Where Jesus has been establishing life order government under the leadership of Jesus for a thousand years, now the planet is ready for the Father to come. And he comes and he makes his home with man. This has been the dream of his heart since before there were ever humans, because he knew how the garden was going to go. The very reality of Jesus Christ means God knew man was going to fall. God knew that there was going to need to be redemption. God understood how in the Father's heart, he has always wanted this moment to come and dwell with man. It just so happens after the Father comes, that's now really the new beginning. 
And there's not one age after that. There are countless ages to come which will receive even more dynamic upgrades than the ones we've been talking about. This is the storyline of the book of Revelation. Okay, let's break up into groups. Look how many groups we got. Four groups, six to seven. Who are my group leaders? All right. Uh, Caitlin, can I get you over here? Luke Fredenberg, you stay put. Andy over there. John's right here. We got four groups of six to seven. So try to not have like, you know, nine or ten people in your group. Chase somebody off. Let's get into groups of six to seven, and uh, we'll have Q&A time at the end. Ready, go. All right, we're going to go ahead and transition now into Q&A. So uh, we'll repeat the questions so that anybody that's watching or listening later can hear the questions. All right, Luke Fredenberg, why don't we start with you? So Revelation 12, 17, when Satan gets thrown out of heaven, uh, are we going to change the rapid fire prayer topic to something related? I just can't imagine us missing that opportunity. And I am sure by that point, we'll know what to pray, because right now I'll be like, don't let him be thrown out of heaven. Nope, nope. It says he's got to. Let him be thrown halfway? No. Okay. Don't let him come to America? I don't. I mean, we're going we're gonna to know what to pray, and it will be clear. But at the moment, I don't know how we're going to answer that. But, but uh, to Luke's, the, the underlying question and point is, the church will have very real responsibility and opportunity to be responding to these end-time events in intercession. And the church will be operating in power and authority as at no time in human history. And so while Satan is going to be raging louder than he ever has, the church will be operating in power and in clarity in the place of intercession as at no time. So I have no doubt we'll actually be receiving instructions in that hour about what to be praying related to Mr. Satan walking around. And what do we do and how do we pray? It, it won't be, eyes ah, here. I guess we're just stuck for a while. The church... The bride of Jesus Christ will be responding to Satan's hereness. And we'll know what to pray when the time comes. Great question. All right, Andy in the back. So uh, Jesus, the Great Commission, says go and you know, make disciples of all nations, teach them to obey everything. The question being, how much of this narrative that we're talking about tonight makes sense to include in our presentation of the gospel? Um, I want to just give you the really awesome way that Jesus ended the Great Commission. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So Jesus in the Great Commission is highlighting the fact that there is an age that's going to get wrapped up with his return. There is an age that then the rules will transition at the end of this age. That his coming is part of the scenario that wraps up the end of this age. And so I think that the, one of the things that's missing, and missing in a way that is um, costly, I think it's costly that the gospel is proclaimed without the second coming as the highlight point. He died and rose again. Why? So he can come back and be king forever. We've stopped right in the middle of the story and we've made the middle chapters of the story the climax. And they're not. He's coming back. That's the point. He came so he could come back. 
I mean, this is the whole reason that the Jews did not know what to do with Jesus because they didn't understand it was a two-coming reality. They were looking at all the what's he going to do when he comes the second time parameters. Well, that's very Jesus. That's very Messiah. That's very purpose. And so I think that the subject of the second coming, again, it just has not, it's been veiled. It has not been clear in past generations. But I think the subject of the end times, really the blessed hope, the return of Jesus, and how he's going to transition the age and the beauty of that and the expectation of that, I think needs to become very central to the presentation of the gospel. It doesn't mean you only talk about that, but you've got to like, you've got to give people the understanding of what's coming and what they avoid if they love Jesus and what they get if they love Jesus. And so much of what they avoid and so much of what they get is tied to the end of the age and then the age to come. So great question. All right, John. So uh, the question it related to uh, when Satan returns, or when, rather when Satan comes out of the abyss after the thousand years and he goes out to deceive the nations and he's very successful. But again, let's pretend that the, the population of the earth is 100 billion. I mean, I'm just making that number up. I have no idea what the real number is. But let's pretend it's 100 billion and 8 billion <laughs> or 20 follow Satan. It's still not like the majority. It's not going to be the majority of people are going to go after uh, Satan. But the question was uh, relationship to of what category of person does that apply to? And does it apply to those that have resurrected bodies, resurrected minds? They've been with Jesus. They've been ruling with Jesus for a thousand years. Uh, They made it through the, you know, great tribulation and they didn't deny Jesus. Will those people be susceptible to this uh, great deception at the end of the age? No, the deception is tied to the peoples of the earth. And it it makes it pretty clear when you're looking at uh, Revelation 20 and the context of that deception, it's talking about people from the different nations that are on earth that have been under Jesus's leadership with not a resurrected body. It's the resistors and their kids and their kids and their kids and their kids. And so, uh, so you know, the point of getting through either it, it, the, the test is this in this hour, you make it through the great tribulation and you hold to the faith you have arrived. If you make it through more or less the same ex- exact deception at the end of the millennium, now it wouldn't be you, but it would be the kids of those resistors that are then born in millennium. If they make it through that end time deception, then they receive what's referred to as the, the second period of the resurrection. And, and so th- the test is the same. Either way, there has to be an opportunity for agreement with wickedness, evilness, and deception, or Satan has not been given a fair shake. And God is just. And so the people in this age are, we have to deal with Satan. The people in that age will have to deal with Satan. It just so happens they don't have to deal with him for a very short period of time, but the test will be very real. It just so happens that also the test has been handed out to everybody ahead of time. It's called uh, Revelation chapter 20. We're told exactly how it's going to go. And it's not like the Bible is going to disappear in the millennium. The Bible is going to be even more important than the millennium. I had a, uh, just a, a millennial uh, uh, verse connection today when I was um, praying about, thinking about uh, the Joel 2.28, um, I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh. 
And uh, the the terminology in Joel 2.28 is, I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh. And then it describes what all flesh is. You know, on my sons and my daughters, my maidservants, my, my uh, men servants. But there will be a time when God will pour out his spirit on all flesh. In the millennium, 100% of humanity will have the spirit of the Lord poured out on them. I mean, they, they will know the Lord. They'll, and who knows what waves of glory, who knows what revivals will take place in the millennium? I mean, and, and think about how much all of us churchgoers want revival to come to our church. Like waves of the Holy Spirit coming. There's actually going to come a time where it won't even be tied, the Joel 2.28 prophecy, it won't even be tied specifically uh, to you know, a segment of humanity like when Joel 2.28 is going to happen in the, in the last days. There's actually going to be a time where that verse will carry over and be fulfilled in the age to come. I think we're going to find a million Bible verses like that that are applicable in the next age. I got off target topic, but it was fun for me. All right, Caitlin. So the question is, we're told that the two witnesses prophesy for 1,260 days, but the rapture happens, the beginning of the rapture happens at 1,260 days. Uh, then they, these guys die, and then they are raised to life three days later. Three or three and a half. Say three and a half. Three and a half days later. Uh, so there is a little bit of disagreement on this particular point amongst the teachers in this house. I believe that the rapture takes time and that what occurs is this is part of the rapture, but the rapture is not an instantaneous moment in my assessment where 100% of all people are raptured in a second. I believe that they are raptured as Jesus is making his rounds around the earth and he hasn't made his round around Jerusalem yet. And when he does, it's three and a half days later. And that's when the two, the two witnesses are raptured. So that's my uh, interpretation of that verse and how uh, that goes. But I, I will make the caveat that not everybody on our teaching team sees it that way. So there's my answer. Okay. Riveting. Great job, guys. We did it. 115 sessions. You're still here. Man, we did it. This is great. What a marathon. Hey, now, do remember, though, we did take a break to do prophetic history somewhere in there for a summer. It was for I COVID. Mean, it, it wasn't like... <laughs> during you know, COVID. Yeah, during COVID. Yeah, we took a little break. Yeah, is that a hand? <laughs> so, so many people that have been coming around have no idea what an encounter service is if we don't do Revelation. So believe me, we did lots of encounter services before Revelation. Okay, Father, we thank This concludes this teaching from the prayer room. For more resources, please visit our website at tprdfw.com. Thank you.